Amen, amen. Choir, thank you. What a beautiful song, beautifully done. I, the cross is a strange thing to behold. It's like the equivalent of an electric chair or a instrument of death, and yet it's the center of our faith as Christians. It's an odd thing. You don't see people wearing electric chairs around their necks as jewelry or decoration, but that is the scandal of the cross. It's an instrument of death. It's an instrument of corporal capital punishment. And yet, we glory standing amazed at the power of the cross. And that is what today is all about. I hadn't sung that hymn at the cross in a long time, but as we sang it, it took me back to my childhood at Oak Valley Baptist Church in Franklin, Tennessee. And I could still remember this older gentleman who sang that bass line on that chorus there. And I could just hear it in the basement of the house that we worshiped in. And what a powerful song that uh, when I first saw the light at the foot of the cross and what the cross has accomplished in my life. And that's what we're going to celebrate and explore today, the cross of Christ. We're going to continue our series through the Apostles' Creed by looking at another line in this uh, set of beliefs that we proclaim as, as Christians to be the, the core of our faith. And if these beliefs in the creed are the, the center of what it means to be a Christian, this line today in the creed is the core of the core. It's, it's the heart of the heart of the doctrine of what we believe as Christians. That line is this, that we believe that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So our text today is a longer passage. It comes from the Gospel of John. We're going to kind of have an Easter moment here, a Good Friday, really, moment. Uh, Easter's next week. Today's Good Friday. So we're going to read from John chapter 18 and chapter 19, starting in verse 28 of chapter 18. So let's stand in honor of God's Word as I read this passage and I want to challenge you to use your imagination today. Put yourself present in the crowd of, of Jewish leaders, of, of the throng of, of the mob that had gathered at Pilate's uh, palace there to, to hear the trial of, of Jesus. Imagine being a part of that and witnessing these moments between Jesus and Pilate. Verse 28, chapter 18. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. 
but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation at the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, there were uh, some, some names throughout history that will always be synonymous with evil, right? There are some dudes in history that were such bad dudes that their names live on in infamy for the heinous deeds that they've committed. Adolf Hitler saw the the carrying out of a mass genocide of Jewish people during the early 1940s. Then Osama bin Laden was the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks. And Pontius Pilate was the man responsible for the death of Jesus. He will always be remembered as the man who killed Jesus Christ. You know, the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem had long before this time decided that Jesus had to go. 
He must be killed. He must be ruined. He threatened to bring down their whole established order, their way of life consisting of rituals and and temple sacrifices and cultic practices that they had worked so hard to construct. These Jewish leaders were comfortable with these centuries-old traditions that they had cultivated of following the Torah and keeping the traditions alive of their forefathers. Then along comes Jesus, and he's unlike any rabbi that ever lived. He says things like, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. And the crowds couldn't deny that Jesus left a huge impact everywhere he went. He brought healing and and hope and, and miracles occurred. Signs and wonders followed Jesus everywhere. He even raised a dead man to life four days after that man had died. But the stuff that really got Jesus in trouble was not just the the works that he did, but the, the supernatural authority with which he did these things and with which he taught. The crowds were astonished by his teaching. They were amazed every time he taught, not because the teaching was so profound, but because when he taught, he did so as the Son of God himself. He taught with a divine authority. He didn't just teach the law. He was the messianic fulfillment of that very law which he was teaching. He told them, I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to complete it to fulfill it. These leaders weren't ready for this world-altering reality that God had come in the flesh to live among them, to dwell among them, giving them words of life and then dying a sacrificial death in their place. They weren't ready for the, the reality that God had come to earth to rescue it, but that's exactly what had happened. Look at John 5, 18. It'll be on the screens here. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath day, by doing God's work on the holy Sabbath day of rest, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. How dare he? Just in case it it wasn't clear what Jesus was claiming, just in case they weren't getting what he was teaching, he makes it abundantly plain in John chapter 10, a few chapters later, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. There's no doubt what he's saying. So after months and months of scheming, the the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin in in Jerusalem, finally found a way to arrest Jesus. They they got to a traitor in his own camp, right? They paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to point out whom Jesus the Christ was while a band of, of soldiers went and arrested him in the garden the night after he had celebrated the Passover meal, which we are going to partake of here in a minute in the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly after that meal. The soldiers came and arrested him. They took him away to 
Annas and Caiaphas, the, the high priests that ruled over Jerusalem during that time under the Roman authority. This was no surprise that they brought Jesus to Caiaphas because Caiaphas had set the whole thing up. This was all his plan to get rid of Jesus. He'd been the one who'd been clamoring for Jesus' execution from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. The problem was that under the Roman occupation, the Sanhedrin had no legal grounds to execute any criminals. They didn't have the power of the state to carry out an execution. So they had to get Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, to do it for them. Sure, Caiaphas could have arranged for a, a, a vigilante mob uh, kind of execution where a, a group of, of Jewish leaders would bum rush Jesus and take him to the edge of the city like had happened before, and they could stone him to death right there. But that wasn't Caiaphas's plan. You see, Caiaphas wanted Jesus to die like a common criminal. He wanted all the people of Judea to see this so-called Messiah hung on a wooden cross, dying a, a very painful, excruciating death, but also fully aware that Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 says clearly that anyone who was hanged on a tree was cursed by God. Caiaphas wanted them to point to Jesus and say, look at the imposter. He said he was God, but now he's cursed by God, hanging on a tree. So Caiaphas sends Jesus on after he finds him guilty. He sends him over to Pilate's palace at dawn on Friday morning. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor who'd been appointed as the prefect, as the Romans said, over that whole region. It was only because he was married to a relative of Caesar that he got this appointment. He was originally from Sevilla in Spain, Seville. He was an opportunistic and ruthless Roman soldier, though, in the German legions who had climbed the ranks after his marriage to Claudia, the emperor's niece. So he got to live in this big fortress that King Herod had built prior to, to Pilate's rule. And the, the Jewish delegation that brings Jesus, this crowd, this mob, they can't enter into Pilate's palace because going into a Gentile house was uh, against the law, the Torah. It would defile them and, and ruin all their Passover festivities. They wanted to enjoy that whole week of Passover. So they're so meticulous about keeping these little laws. They could go into a courtyard of a Gentile, but not under the roof of a Gentile. And what's ironic is that they're so careful about following these little details in the Torah, but they're attempting to carry out judicial murder here. They're neglecting the weightier matters of the law for the little tiny details that they get hung up on. And Pilate, who's just trying to please everybody, he's kind of a coward. He's just trying to avoid any more riots, not getting in any more trouble from Caesar. And, and he's just trying to please everyone. So he ends up getting caught between the crowd outside and the prisoner inside. He goes out to the Jews. He hears their accusation. He goes back in and questions Jesus. And then he goes back out. And then he goes back in. And he goes back out and goes back in. And the first time he, he hears these, these accusations, the, the accusation is not really anything specific at all, is it? All the Jews say is, well, if he hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't have brought him here. Duh. Come on. Of course he's guilty. 
There's no specific charge, though, that they bring against Jesus. And so when Pilate goes and talks with Jesus, he, of course, finds no fault. Three times he says, I find no guilt in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was innocent, completely. So he comes up with a plan of releasing Jesus. It will be an act of kindness by a benevolent governor. He's going to release a prisoner for Passover. That's a terrible idea because the crowd says, no way. Give us a real bad guy. Give us Barabbas, a robber. Some people think he's a murderer and just an all-around bad guy. So Pilate goes back in, and this time he has Jesus beaten and mocked, flogged, whipped, to prove to the Jewish crowd that he's serious about punishing this guy. Then he brings Jesus back out to the crowds with a, a purple robe and a crown of thorns pressed into his skull, and he's bleeding, and he's in pain. And Pilate says, behold the man. Ecce homo in Latin, right? Behold the man. Look at this guy. Look at how pathetic. Is this, is this guy a threat to you? He's, I've already whipped him. He's, he's just a weakling. I've completely broken him down. He's not a threat to you or me or anyone else. And the crowd, though, has already devolved into mob mentality. They are bent on seeing Jesus crucified. So Pilate tries to weasel out of doing it himself. Take him away. You guys do it, he tells the crowd. But the Jewish leaders are determined to have the government do their dirty work. So they finally come up with a charge. Blasphemy. So Pilate takes Jesus back inside and he tries to figure out who this guy really is. In the book of Matthew, we see that his wife had a dream about Jesus the night before and warned Pilate to have nothing to do with him. What, what is the deal with Jesus? Who is this guy? He asks him, where are you from? Maybe he's starting to really fear that the reality could be that this man actually is the Son of God, who he claims to be. So we ask him, who, who are, where are you from? And Jesus is silent, which of course makes Pilate angry. And he says, don't you know who I am? I'm a big deal around here. I have authority. I can kill you or I can set you free. Show me some respect. And Jesus says, your authority is not really your authority. Your power over me isn't what you think it is. So Pilate brings Jesus back out, and he sees that he's not going to be able to release him, so he just gives up. He sits on the seat of judgment, and he delivers Jesus unto death. He hands him over to the execution squad to take him out to Golgotha, outside the city, and to kill him. And the line here in the creed says that we believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know, the, the Latin word here for suffered is the word passus. It's where we get our word passion from, right? And, and, and passion isn't just a deep feeling, right? The, the word passus is connected to the word passive. It, it implies outside forces acting upon an object. So the passion of the Christ is that Christ is the object and all these outside forces are acting on him, Right? Is Jesus suffering due to Jewish leaders who conspired against him? Was it due to Pilate, who was a coward, who was only trying to save his own skin? 
Or was it due to the Roman government, a corrupt system that wrongfully convicted an innocent man and brutally tortured and killed him? Is that the outside forces that are working here on Jesus? No. No, not at all. The passion of Jesus was only designed by one outside force, that of God Almighty. In Acts 2, chapter 2, verse 23, Peter gets up and he preaches to the crowd at Pentecost and he tells the people, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but it was part of the plan of God from the very beginning. This was all part of God's master plan to redeem this fallen world back unto himself and make all the wrongs right. Isaiah prophesied about this 600 years before the event happened. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God was the actor acting upon Jesus. You may say, that's sick. Why would a good God do that to his only son? The truth is that at the cross, God's perfect justice for sin and punishing wrongs and his perfect love meet. They're made complete in the cross. The cross of Christ was the means that God forged as a path for salvation for me and for you. Sinners are saved in the cross. You know, Barabbas is fascinating. He, he may be the only person in human history that Jesus physically took the place of. All he was hearing was this crowd chanting, crucify, and I'm sure he thought it was for himself. They said, let his blood be upon our hands. I'm sure he knew he was headed to the cross to die. Instead, Jesus went to the cross and Barabbas was set free. You know, last week we marveled at the miracle of the incarnation, that God took on flesh, that he was born of a virgin Mary and dwelt among us as God in the flesh. Today we see the reason for the incarnation. Jesus became a man in order to take our place on the cross, that we may be free, that we may be set free. Christ became man in order to shed his blood as a perfect, spotless sacrifice for the sins of the world. Romans 8, verse 32, Paul makes this clear. He says that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You know, this is an act of love and justice, right? Again, love and justice. God is perfectly just and perfectly loving. I've heard people quote 1 John 4, 8 out of context all the time. God is love, man. God is love. We just got to love people. That's it. Just love. That's right. Okay, I agree with that. God is love. We do have to love people. But God's love is not some tolerant benevolence it's not some feel-good kind of do-good love. 1 John 4, if you look at the whole context, makes it clear what God's love is, is, finds its fullest expression. It's in the cross of Christ. Two verses later, 1 John 4.10, 
says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He agaped us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love that word, propitiation. That, that song that the choir sang earlier was all about the propitiation of God. It, it, it means to take wrath and to turn it into something good. It means to take something bad, to deflect that bad and, and give a blessing in return. It's a beautiful word. And the cross is the propitiation where God's wrath was turned into favor for us sinners. John, First uh, John 2, 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserved and instead he imputed his perfect righteousness to us when we did not deserve it. So now as we move into a time of communion with God, we're going to remember this act of love and justice this morning. And I want us to remember three things specifically as we think about the cross in this passage where Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Let us first remember that the kingdom of God is not of this world. If you try to look at Christianity in terms of Western economics, it will not make sense. It's not supposed to. It's not of this world. Just as Jesus told Pilate, he's the king of a far greater kingdom than any earthly empire that ever existed. Greater than Rome at the height of its glory. Greater than Greece under Alexander the Great. And greater even than the United States of America ever has been or ever will be. Pilate was only focused on worldly things. Power. Fame. Control, wealth, a big fortress, a big palace that he lived in. Philippians 3.19 says that for people who live like that, that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You know, legend has it that Pilate committed suicide shortly after this in France, that he was shipped out to, to Gaul by the Roman Empire. You know, the Roman Empire itself, we know from history, would crumble only a few generations after this moment and fall apart completely. No empire is lasting in this world, but the kingdom of God is forever. This world is not our home. If we're going to live the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us, then we have to get our minds out of this world and to set them on things that are above Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I told you the creed comes from the Bible, right? Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Second thing I want us to remember is when Pilate asked that question about truth, what is truth? That all truth is rooted in Christ. Pilate was looking for the truth. He wanted to know the key to reality, the key to living truthfully in this world. And he didn't realize that the truth was sitting right in front of him. 
Truth is not found in a set of philosophical beliefs. No book can give you the truth except for the word of God. Truth is found ultimately in a person, the very person that was seated before Pilate. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A, a few chapters earlier in John 8, Jesus said that, that the truth will set you free. And the Son, if the Son has set you free, then you are free, what? Indeed. You know, in our current world of post-truth and, and truthiness, as Stephen Colbert says, I think it's really important for us to remember that all truth is grounded in Christ. When we don't know what news to believe, when we don't know whose testimony to believe or what to turn to in this world, it's important we remember first and foremost, all truth is grounded in Christ. Finally, let us remember that the body of Christ broken for us Let's remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us. The cross of Christ failed to do what Caiaphas thought it would do. It did not prove Jesus to be some cursed imposter. Far from it. It proved him to be our perfect sacrifice. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You know, the, the passion of the Christ was not that Pilate or that the Jewish leaders or that the Roman soldiers or that the, the crowd, it wasn't that they did harm to Jesus. Again, the, the passion of the Christ was enacted by God, a loving and merciful and just Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As the old hymn puts it, before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have forged a way for us sinful humans to be made right with you. We thank you that your perfect love and your perfect justice, that you, you did not compromise either one of those. You didn't let sin slide, but you punished it in your own son, in your own flesh. And you did it because you loved us. I think about the old song that says sometimes love has to drive a nail into its own hand. And that's what you did for us, oh God. As we move into this time of remembrance, we pray that you would help us to remember what you have done for us. We have recited the creed this morning, which says that you have done these things from the beginning of time that was part of your plan to make us right with yourself and to redeem this fallen world back unto your holy standards. Lord God, such 
gospel knowledge is too wonderful for us to wrap our brains around. It's too much for our hearts to contain it. But I pray that you would really help us to commune with you during this time as we reflect on the cross, as we remember what the cross represents, that your perfect love and your perfect justice kissed at the foot of the cross where love ran red, where we first saw the light and the burden of our sins was rolled away. God, we thank you that you've restored our sight, that you've made us whole, you've made us new through the cross of Christ. Help us to be gospel people who live with joy and victory over cancer, over death, over suffering, over pain, over anxiety, over loneliness, over poverty, over injustice, because of the cross. We know the cross represents so many things, God. It represents your victory over these things. It represents that you have won the day. It represents that you have taken something really bad and turned it into something really good, and that is what you do all the time, oh God. Help us to remember that anew this morning as we take these elements. We love you. We pray these things in the high and the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This time, I'm going to ask our, our deacons and our ushers to come forward. If you're going to help distribute the elements. Here at Woodmont, we do ask that if you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, someone who's professed faith in the Lord Jesus and have surrendered your life to him and given your all to him and accepted the free gift of salvation that he offers, we ask that you would partake in these elements as they are passed around. We ask that if you haven't done that yet, if you're a child maybe who is yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior in your life, then we ask that you refrain from taking these elements at this time. We're going to take the bread first and we'll have a time of reflection. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves before we take the elements, to look inward in our own hearts. I was talking with a church member about the confession last week and he was saying, man, I say that confession and I'm reminded of what Paul said, that I'm the chief of sinners. I, of all people, am least deserving of God's grace and yet he died on the cross for me. That is the truth, and I want us to hear that afresh today. So at this time, our ushers are going to distribute the elements while Nathan and Carol play softly. I ask you just to bow your heads and have a time of reflection as we remember that Christ died on the cross for us.